We're joined on MO Forum by Dr. Kim Huynh of the Australian National University, uh, who lectures in the politics of uh, refugee issues. Uh, welcome to MO Forum. Great and, to be here. Uh, I wonder whether we might start with you just uh, telling our viewers a little bit about your background and how you came to pursue um, the politics of refugee issues as an academic pursuit. Yep. Uh, well, my background is that I was a boat person. I was one and a half when we left Vietnam in 1979, mm -hmm. and we arrived in Australia uh, eight or nine months later, uh, in uh, just before Christmas, uh, exactly 30, 34 years ago now. Yeah. Um, oddly enough, my my I had a son recently, and he's of the same size and age as when I left Vietnam. So he's with my parents right now, and they they like to say that he's uh, how would one translate? He's ripe for exile. Oh, he's, yeah. he's, he's ready to leave Australia, but uh, so so that's 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 generally my family background. We were uh, Vietnamese boat people. That's a long journey, nine months. Uh, no, we were we were in Kuala, um, in uh, Palau Bidong in yeah. Malaysia in a camp, in yeah. a couple of camps for for nine months when they were at their peak. It's really, we've been I've been back there recently a few years ago. Uh, so uh, yeah, and uh, if uh, MO Forum. Uh, uh, listeners and watchers want to, uh, more of that story. There's Where the Sea Takes Us, a Vietnamese-Australian story. But perhaps of more and, interest. And what's that, a book? Or oh, that's a book, sorry. Yeah. That's a memoir, a political memoir of my parents and their lives oh, uh, uh, during uh, the Indo-Chinese Wars and, yeah. and directly afterwards. Well, we are approaching Christmas and it's time for people to get out and do their Christmas Absolutely. shopping and go to the bookstores. <laughs> it's on ebook too, HarperCollins, uh, yeah. Where the Sea Takes Us. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've, I've thought about this for a while now. More, perhaps more interesting for, for the viewers and listeners is um, the relationship between the personal and political. Uh, what is my, uh, my personal experiences as a refugee? What is that? And, and other, some progressive listeners might have had uh, run-ins with refugees and, and have dealings with them. Uh, how should one best articulate that uh, um, in terms of progressive politics? Because for me, it's not necessarily the case because I'm uh, I was a refugee or boat person that I uh, immediately have sympathy for all refugees and boat people. I have empathy. I can put myself mm. in their shoes, and that's sure. that's probably worth a lot. But it doesn't necessarily mean that I think that everyone who's gone through those experiences uh, is somehow worthy, honourable, and heroic. Uh, yeah. And more importantly, for politics, uh, I, I suppose it's more important to to figure out how one articulates that empathy and even sympathy in a way that it also is not deemed un-Australian or against national interests in the contemporary context. That's, that's sort of interests me for a while now, that question. Yeah. And I think that's one of the great challenges for uh, progressive thinkers and actors in Australia. Um, and the, the other part of that question, how did I start teaching and researching this, was um, largely out of good fortune and... Uh, uh, and having a great job at the ANU, where I, after a couple of years of doing an apprenticeship there as a lecturer and teaching uh, introductory courses, they said to me, as the best universities do, uh, what do you deem uh, best for you to teach uh, for yourself, uh, for the research community, for students and for Australia? And uh, I didn't have much uh, research background in refugee politics, but it was 2005 and six, and it had already been established as a major issue in Australian politics. So I yeah. thought... Uh, uh, this will be important. Hopefully, it'll blow away and it'll be a boutique, a boutique, boutique course, course that we'll only do no, for a little I, while. I, but I'll, it's been... I'll guarantee you this: <laughs> if you want to, 
keep teaching it, you'll be able to do it for a very yeah. long time. Well, it's been uh, immensely popular and successful uh, ever since. 1979 was uh, the period under the Fraser Liberal government. Malcolm Fraser has a pretty good reputation uh, in terms of uh, reaching out to um, so-called boat people from Indochina. I remember and have looked up more recently the sorts of utterances of Malcolm Fraser, he did actually want uh, an orderly intake of refugees and they worked out that the best way of doing that was to have, uh, well, I suppose they were then called and probably still are detention centres uh, in Malaysia and other parts of Southeast Asia. Uh, it, would that be a fair characterisation of the Fraser government's approach? Uh, yes, but he was... Um... I suppose the difference with the camps that we were in was that as difficult as they were and there were issues with uh, particularly young people self-harming and protests and whatever else that we have in Australia, but the difference is by and large almost everyone would be resettled somewhere else because of uh, uh, transnational, international deals between uh, largely America, Canada, France Canada and Australia. Canada was in there with the United States so, and France, you say. Yeah. 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 So, so, I mean, you'd wait there for a long time, but there, there, there was hope uh, on yeah. those camps and as difficult as the conditions were. But the, the contrast is, is an immensely interesting one. I mean, what, what people often say is the difference is leadership because back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, uh, we still hadn't had a major modern intake of Asian Australians. No, so, right. so there's a lot of leadership that's required. We're still on you know, white Australia had, had, had pretty much petered off, but there was still probably the shadow of that. Well, so wasn't it wasn't that issue. long before um, Harold Holt actually uh, started formalising the steps to uh, get rid of the white Australia policy and Gough Whitlam formally did so. Mm. And that was in the early 70s. You're talking at the late 70s. So the psyche would have still been, uh, I think, pretty much yeah. uh, white Australia in those days. And I, so, I, yeah, I understand there was a lot of opposition mm. and there was a lot of leadership that was required to make it work. But I'll, I'll go the contrast here too, that, that would, in some ways it was easier for them. And I, I'd be happy to, uh, to debate this with uh, listeners, viewers and whoever else. I'm, I'm not totally sure. It's more a question. I wonder whether it was easier in some ways because there were far fewer boats that arrived on Australian shores. Sure, yeah. So they, they, it looked like it was a problem over there that we could manage yeah. uh, on our own terms. Uh, so with, I think for the Vietnamese and Indo-Chinese, I should say, probably 1,500 over, that, over that, those few years of, of boat direct arrivals. I could be wrong there, but it was far fewer than now. And, uh, and arguably it's, it's different because it's not a... Um, oh, this, this goes both ways, but... Uh, the people smuggling issue wasn't as big, uh, largely because there weren't mobile phones and the ability to, yes, to organise yeah. uh, relatively easy, easily uh, people smuggling, uh, the people smuggling business. The journeys were longer, by the way, um, from, um, say, Vietnam to Malaysia or through the Gulf of Siam. That was pretty hazardous. Right. A lot of, pir a lot uh, of pirates. pirates killed a lot of um, people who were trying to uh, leave Vietnam. But uh, let me ask this final question about those days because I think it is relevant. It's fascinating, but it's also relevant to compare to the issues of today. Um, when the processing occurred, was the presumption that anyone who had ended up in this um, refugee camp a genuine refugee because they'd arrived by boat? Uh, yep, absolutely. But mm -hmm. that, was, um, that was prior to 
during the, the term of what was called the Comprehensive Plan of Action, yeah. that people were presumed to be refugees if they'd left uh, Indochina. Yeah. Um, I think it was uh, largely until the end of the 1980s. And after that, you had to be assessed. Okay. So, but uh, that, this is possibly one of the other differences, though, because the really big debate going on in Australia, and not exclusive to Australia, is whether people arrived by boat are genuine refugees or whether some of them may not be genuine refugees. But there was, in a sense, a simplicity of the Indo-Chinese refugee intake in that if you made it by boat from Indochina, most particularly Vietnam, to Malaysia, that's probably enough to yeah, establish yeah. that you're a refugee. But, but that simplicity grows out of political will, mm. probably out of guilt, about yeah, the Vietnam about War, involvement in the uh, and war. also just the, the huge sense that there was an emergency. We're talking about you know hundreds of thousands yes. of people leaving Vietnam. It wasn't as it wasn't a situation that you could just leave or, or push off to other people. It had something had to be done about it. It was it was just a major humanitarian crisis yeah. that was very visual yeah. uh, for Australians and people around the world. And maybe we shouldn't be <clears throat> so misty eyed about it either. Mm. In saying they were the good old days when we had a much more tolerant attitude because. I do recall I was actually in um, Thailand at that time and Vietnam had invaded Cambodia and we saw some horrific sights at the Sarkow um, mm. refugee camp. But uh, I remember the commentary in the Far East and Economic Review and so on about the conditions in the refugee camps. They weren't pleasant places. No. You know, people were behind wire. Yep, absolutely. And we were on an island, Palau Bidong, which is mm. now... Um, something of a tourist uh, island, you can scuba dive there. But there were there were forty thousand people. We were we were sort of near the high end, forty thousand people on uh, a square kilometre yeah. of land. So it was pretty uh, pretty harsh uh, uh, circumstances. But by and large, we knew if we waited out, You'd get that we'd be to one of those four countries. Particularly because yeah. my family was a, a nuclear family, a self-contained family, so right. we didn't. Uh, we were a good prospect, uh, particularly for we were sponsored to Canberra by the Ainsley Church of Christ. Uh, uh -huh. Had their carols yesterday. Oh, good. But yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I suppose on that point, just quickly, mm. that's part of the difference too. I, I mean, there was still a, a um, oh, there still is, but there was a strong spirit of uh, uh, of being the Good Samaritan. Uh, yeah. The churches were still strong. You had a different type of social capital in Australia. Uh, that meant that a lot of churches and, and NGOs and charity groups came out. The government uh, assisted them too, uh, to sponsor uh, uh, sponsor refugees and, and help them settle in the community. Whereas, obviously, in the last uh, decade and a bit, uh, the, the government's been at loggerheads with mm, those yeah. with those communities. So, once again, the, the part of the progressive challenge is uh, in a in a more secular world, arguably, 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 I know. Uh, but for progressives in particular, how are you going to express those values of cosmopolitanism, yeah. of being a good Samaritan? Whereas in the past, it was pretty easy. You go to the good old book and you say, we should look after these yeah. people. We should be generous to these people. Uh, what book are progressives turning to? How are they articulating mm -hmm. um, their support for asylum seekers? And there is a humanitarian program. So if we come forward, uh, let's uh, imagine just for the sake of the discussion that there were no more boat arrivals from now on, there will still be a humanitarian program. Uh, I think it's been pared back to 13,750. Right. Uh, it had been lifted uh, to 20,000 by the previous government. 
uh, and it raises this issue. It's not really a question of whether we accept uh, our responsibility to settle refugees. I think the broader Australian public accepts that we should. There are some over in the far right who just don't want anyone who's of um, a refugee or, or looks different to them. So we'll keep them over there on the far right. Mm-hmm. And this show is not um, seeking to project to them. So if we've got a, a, a humanitarian program, can we um, discharge our responsibilities uh, in a way that we have an orderly program or should those who arrive by boat get some special consideration? Right. Um, long question. Yeah, it's a long <laughs> question. I, I, I look, I think it goes back to uh, the, the, the premise of the question, if there were no more boats. Mm. Right now, uh, many of the listeners and viewers would, would know that um, there's a link between the offshore humanitarian program and onshore arrivals. So we have 13,700 or something yeah, now of people yeah. that we grab from, from camps across the world. Yeah. And, and every person who comes by boat means we get one less person right. uh, from the camp. So that was introduced, I think, at the start of the Howard years, 96 yeah. or 97, that link. Previously, there was no link because there weren't many boats coming either. Yes. So... There is a displacement. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, so yeah, I, I'd say... Oh, we'll go, look, I'll, maybe we'll do this later because it's a longer issue. Uh, what does it mean to, for border security to work? What does it mean for, for both people? I'd suggest that it's still problematic because it's not like they're just waiting in Indonesia or in Pakistan and they're totally happy and safe. So it doesn't necessarily mean if there's no boats that things are working. But in terms of uh, the, uh, the humanity, I, I don't think... I'll, I'll, I'll just go straight to the answer. Let's mm. go straight to the answer's easiest because it's a complex question. I think they've there probably should be a link. Politically, you'd never get rid of that link now because no. they'd say, anyone who said, um, we're going um, to maintain a humanitarian program regardless of the number of boats that came, they'd immediately be pilloried as someone who, t- who says we're opening the doors because uh, technically an infinite number of people could yes. come to Australia by boat. But uh, this is getting complex. I think it's... Sh- but the problem that that link causes is that... Uh, it means that there is, uh, in a political discourse, a queue. Because for every one person comes yes. by boat, they look unjust. They should, they're, they're imposing themselves upon Australia. And everyone who waits in a camp is just and worthy. Mm. That's not necessarily the case. Arguably, you could also say the people who come by a boat have a right in terms of proximity and need and desperation, uh, in, along with having a certain amount of money. But when did we ever... Uh, uh, discriminate against anyone for having money. Yeah, the Liberal uh, Party should support more people arriving by boat because they're entrepreneurial and they've got money. Absolutely. <laughs> and often often they're not even rich. They've pooled whole villages that put together yeah, money yeah. To, to come here. And I mean, we, had, we gave everything we had. To, we, were, we were petty bourgeoisie in, uh, mm, mm. in Vietnam and no one ever... We were discriminated because we were yeah, petty yeah. bourgeoisie. Yeah, yeah. So we were certainly... And we I, I make that again. point not to be cheeky. That point is actually made by people on the conservative yeah, side. Yeah, the small else. There's some serious people who say, well, you know, the conservative side should look to people who arrive by boat because they're risk takers, because they're entrepreneurial and probably they've got some money. Yeah, yeah. And they're forward looking. They want, they're progressive too. They want tomorrow to be better than today. They yeah. want to do something for their kids, you know, even if it's just they don't want to be poor anymore. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's probably admirable. Which, which will uh, take us to the question of economic refugees in a moment. But yeah. 
you mentioned cues and you said effectively, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, but effectively there's a cue because of this displacement effect. There, if, and the, the point of me saying let's imagine that there were no more boats for the sake of the exercise is that there's no shortage of people in refugee camps wanting to come to Australia. Yeah, yeah. What do you say to those who say that's just um, making excuses? In truth, there is no queue because there are so many people. It's so chaotic in a sense. You know, you, we don't have 20 to 40 million people who are on the move and pretend that it's all beautifully organised. Um, so the, the people on the progressive side say, don't be silly, there is no queue. That's, that's generally right. But the, all I'd say from that is that the, uh, a queue has been uh, generated by the policy decisions of, of several governments now and the political discourse. So we have to deal with that. Yeah. We, you know, and it's not just, I don't think it's enough to just say that, the, I think that's important to say that it's more complex than that, that there's, there is no queue. I understand, yeah. But we have to deal with the queue that, that, yeah. that exists in our political reality. And I think, and this is it's a lot roundabout way, but I think one thing we could do is just say, look, we'll, we'll cap the number of offshore arrivals at five or 10,000. Sorry, um, uh, offshore. No, no, offshore, offshore yeah. resettlement places, but we'll always have at least five or 10,000 regardless of the number of people who came by boat, come by boat. That would be something... So you'd set a base which would be below the current level, which is 13,750. Yeah. Um, And and the important thing about that is, because not only does it help um, uh, Australians not turn against boat arrivals, but it means that that refugees won't turn against each other so much. Because currently... Often it's that the existing community is sourced to take care of new arrivals. So Ali uh, from Afghanistan might be sourced to help look after Hassan, who's a new arrival. Now, uh, if with the current displacement uh, mechanism, uh, Ali will see Hassan as taking Ali's cousin's place. Yes. And it's going to cause a lot of friction uh, within refugee communities. So uh, hopefully that would be assuaged somewhat by having a baseline that will always take this number of people from camps regardless of how many people come from boats. I know one of the arguments, and it's a bit unfortunate, but it's a reality, is that if you did that, uh, let's make it 10,000 out of the 13,750 for the sake of argument. 10,000 are guaranteed for uh, offshore offshore arrivals. Then um, if there's another 3,750, that's fine. Um, You've hit your annual intake. But if there's more than that, then that costs the budget more and you still can get this sense that the government of the day has lost control of its borders. Uh, Yep, absolutely. But, I mean, I think partly the the political fight, and the political fight's important, there's a political fight and a policy fight. And how they're connected, I think, is that that it's a a massively complex transnational problem and it's a long-term problem. It's embedded Mm. in, in our 21st century politics, as you mentioned before. If you get the politics right, it buys time for a proper a, a politics right. It buys time for a proper uh, policy response. Yeah. So I'm not about to come here and say I have the policy answers for everything. Sure. But what I would say is, if we take some heat out of it, if we deal with it um, uh, in a genuinely mature manner, then it won't be a matter of always. It's really childish and and, and counterproductive to always talk about solutions and this government fixing the problem. It's not going to happen. So so. Um, so, so I think 
uh, if we get the politics right, I'll go, what's your question again? I'll go back to it yeah. again. But it's related to that. If we get the politics right, then we'll sort out the policy. Well, it was that. really about the budgetary costs, oh, which right. is substantial. If you budget, and you, you can imagine the Department of Finance, it's not just in this area, yeah. and that, uh, they don't like open-ended programs, you see, yeah, because yeah. how do you budget for them? They blow out. Yeah, and yeah. so um, this is one of the points of attack against the government of the day. You've lost control of your borders, and it's costing a mozza. And that's money that could have gone into hospitals and schools and fixing up potholes and intersections. Yeah, yeah. Now, the progressives have a pretty easy response on that. Uh, end offshore processing and mandatory detention. Because the costs, uh, I would say, firstly, you, you probably should say this is a 21st century problem. It's enduring. We need to have some foresight on this. We can speak to experts and, and people who's, who, who know about security conditions. And, mm. and, and, and it's hard to project, but to project uh, what might... Uh, 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 what sort of um, uh, human displacement problems we might have to deal with in the future. So we need a pretty, it might not be an infinite budget, obviously it won't sure. be, yeah. but it needs to have some wriggle room in it. And the other side of that is the real costs come through the securitization uh, of forced migration. So I'm all for, that's, that's part of the political fight for progressives too. We have to say that, that looking after uh, forced migrants is good for Australia and there's ways to do it that are cost effective, not only in terms of how they're processed, but how they contribute to the community. What do you mean by the term securitisation? In the sense that it's not viewed as a humanitarian problem. I mean, but it's viewed as a security problem. A security risk. A risk, yeah. yeah. So uh, the Abbott government is emblematic of that, of course. You can see that. You can see, I mean, the simple way to view it is look at the shift in the uh, nomenclature, the name of the immigration department over Mm. the last 15 years. We've gone from DIMIA uh, um, uh, multicult- Department of Immigration, Immigration Multiculturalism and Indigenous Affairs yeah. to, to DIAC, uh, the Department of Immigration and Citizenship. So there's more of a naturalisation. We're moving towards immigration. is all about creating Australian citizenships, citizenship. And now it's the Department of Immigration and Border Protection. Border protection yeah. So, you know, really, I know that ASIO has um, uh, certain reports on particularly uh, Tamil uh, asylum seekers say they're a security threat. And it's always something that we have to check very thoroughly. Mm. But really, there hasn't. It's not. It's not fundamentally. It's not a security issue. It's not. We, we make it so. I, I do recall back in uh, two thousand and one, after the World Trade Center bombings, and the Tampa sailed through uh, into you know Australian waters. That the, the security dimensions of that in the minds of the public were acute. Mm. Uh, and that doesn't mean they were real, but it looked like there was this very new and dangerous world. And a lot of people, frankly, were coming from the Middle East and uh, saying, well, they're Muslims and they could kill us. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think that's probably settled down a fair bit. There's a, a greater diversity of source countries um, these days with no disrespect to any country or any religion. And it seems to me that um, if you've got some people coming from Sri Lanka, others from Iran, others from Af- Afghanistan, um, who knows, Syria may well be you know, another source country before too long. There's a bit more diversity there. And I think people have realised that they weren't actually coming out here to mm. repeat the World Trade Centre bombings. That's right. Well, I was thrown up in that a bit too, that I, of course, I clearly remember. And I, was, I had some conferences to go to, you know, 01 and 02, and I was mm. genuinely concerned about getting on a plane. Yeah. But uh, I wasn't. But there were, you know, there were some um, awful claims about that, that, you know, terrorists are harbouring on, on boats yeah, and supplied right. by federal politicians. Uh, mm. I'm interested in them. Uh, what was the 
can you can you reflect upon the debates in the Labor federal Labor Party yeah, sure. at the time where there were um, the well. progressive voices saying about how to deal with the tamper? And uh, well, what happened is that there was a section. I've got quite a good memory um, in the legislation that uh, was dealing with the tamper itself. There was a special bill, Section Forty, empowered. Uh, authorised officers, uh, for example, naval officers and police, to um, do whatever they wanted without um, suffering any legal consequences. Now, our view was that no government, no opposition, no political party should allow people to behave violently and illegally. Now, no one is suggesting that the police or or that um, the Navy would, um, you know, be violent and harm people, but this was actually a piece of law which said if they did, it was legal. And, you know, what that meant for a democracy was quite scary. So Labor knew with the heat in this argument that its position, which is to oppose that bill because of that clause, would be deeply unpopular. And it was. And it was. Then um, within a few days, and so we voted against it. Uh, and the place erupted, I can tell you, you know, the Australian public went nuts against Labor. And I remember coalition MPs saying, Labor MPs are traitors to their country. Mm. And it was broadcast on all news. But then they took that clause out. Right, right. And then Labor voted for it to, um, for better or worse, richer or poorer, um, to allow that border protection legislation to come in. Right, right. And the most... Um and then for the viewers and listeners, and, and the Pacific solution was the main, was the most uh, famous slash infamous element. Of well, that. it came subsequently. This was just the power for um, Australian authorised people to board that vessel and um, remove people from it. Uh, and then along came the Pacific solution and all that subsequently. But this was a huge threshold political issue. Should a mainstream political party vote to allow people to harm or even kill other people and say you're immune from the law? Well, our answer is no, under no circumstances. That actually is what caused the huge backlash against Labor, which is from the general population. And then when Labor did succeed in getting that clause out and uh, the coalition resubmitted the bill, we voted for that, and the whole progressive side of the debate condemned Labor too. Right, right. So we learned something very early on very hard to win politically out of this issue yeah, and we shouldn't yeah. be trying to win politically we should be trying to do the right thing yeah that's, that's um it's a vexed issue for social democrats in particular and, yeah and over the last few years uh, i mean i don't know how you feel about this but this is uh this may be getting too contemporary but obviously in the last few months uh, labor's effectively done uh if you're a progressive humanitarian sort of perspective the dirty work for the liberal party um you know they they were the uh, rad was frazzled and felt like there was a need to do something uh, that was emphatic mm. and uh, and and um, and stop the boats basically to use that jargon yeah. that's become uh, so ensconced in the political discourse and, and now the Liberal Party gets the the benefit out of that politically uh, anyway uh, yeah. at the to the well uh, let's discuss uh, those yeah. issues because um, here's the argument um, the key argument was, and I think still is, the number of people who are dying at sea. So if you've got two sources of refugees, one is arriving 
you know, in an orderly fashion, effectively by plane, because if um, they're from refugee camps, they don't come by boat. Uh, you know, the UNHCR um, yes, says, yes, they are genuine refugees and they're flown here, pretty safe. Uh, the other is a stream of asylum seekers who arrive uh, by boat, and I think the number of people in the last few years who have drowned at sea is well above a thousand. Yep. So here's the proposition that it is not humane to sit back and say, this is too hard. We won't seek to stop arrivals by boat um, because, you know, uh, the left side or the progressive side of politics will cri criticise us, so we'll just let people drown. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the alternative view. Yeah, well... And I must say, that's the view that I hold. I, I was, you know... Just, the horror of little kids who can't swim, just drowning at sea, you know, so yeah. many of them. Um, it just seemed to me that a government can't just say, that's the roulette world. You know, they take their, they pay their money, they take their chances, they die. Yeah, I, w I wouldn't say that. And I'm not necessarily against all forms of deterrence. But, but the, the, I'd go back to this, and this is where the, the progressive on this matter has to be a political realist too. Even if we stop the boats, it doesn't. And we and the researchers, some researchers follow this, but it's very difficult. It doesn't necessarily mean that these people are suddenly honky dory that they're they're just going to wait in some queue yeah. in in Indonesia or Malaysia mm. or go back to Pakistan and live yeah. their lives no, as true. they did um, as they would want. Mm. And remember, the ninety percent of people who come by boat are found to be refugees, which means that they've got a well-founded fear of danger. Yeah. Uh, for their lives or for whatever other reasons. Sure. So, so if Australia yeah. turns them away, if Australia stops the boats and you say you're doing it for refugees, and genuinely, I understand that view, I really do. You can't look at some of those kids dying in particular and not want to do something about that. Particularly if but, they don't get a say in it. Like mum and dad say, well, we'll take the chance. Yes, yeah, well, I never got a say in it, obviously, yeah. either. So, but, but, but they're not going to... I mean, it's, I know it's a, a, a slightly more difficult equation, but just if, even if we stop the boats... That doesn't mean that, that, that people aren't going to die. They're going to die of other means. They're gonna, a lot of them will try to get into other places. Sure. Right? No, that's so, true. So, so my deterrence would be more about in the, uh, working with Indonesia and wherever else from source countries to try to stop people getting on boats and opening uh, uh, more orderly and regular means of, um, uh, of arrival in Australia. Uh, um, uh, and particularly through the humanitarian program. But uh, this is not so much... And this is a, this is a criticism of of uh, uh, Rudd's uh, Rudd Mark II and the and uh, the coalition. Uh, I mean, if if you want to talk about an abstract principle, we have to do the right thing. We shouldn't do harm to people. So sure. right. So if if people happen to die by other people's hands, uh, we're not necessarily at fault as Australians. But but if they die because we've locked them up in detention centres, they've died because we've tried to turn their boats back, which might make other people uh, say that we'll have that. to scuttle mm. their boats yep. even more Certainly so. Agree with uh, that. If we put our own naval uh, people at threat mm. by trying to have a particularly uh, aggressive form yep. of deterrence, that, then, then that's, that's us doing harm, right? right? So, so I think the first, if one goes back to principles, and I think they're important at some stage and really difficult policy discussions, if, if there's many paths to take, we're not sure, we should at least do what's right. And, and for me, that means uh, not doing harm to people. And, and over the last, probably since 
since the mid-90s, we've been doing harm mm. to asylum seekers. So well, we should avoid that first and then we'll live with the political realities. Well, let, let, let me um, wrap this part of the discussion up with a proposition to pick up your point, don't do harm. Isn't there a kind of a humanitarian duty of care when you say don't do harm to seek to prevent people drowning? Yeah, absolutely. And that would involve uh, trying to rescue them at sea. Yeah, but, you know with the best will in the world. It's a vast expanse of water. And of course, if the alarm is raised and you know a vessel is in danger, I'd even suggest that the coalition would say, you, you do need to yeah, save I, them. You know, I, think I, think so. that, I think that's right. But you can um, do harm through commission, which you've just categorised, you know, turning boats around and, and scuttling uh, people scuttling and dying at sea, or omission by just saying, you know what, this is too hard, um, we'll just let the arrivals occur, and if people drown, that's just the, you know, the, the odds. Yeah, yeah, no, I wouldn't, I, I agree, but I just don't think it's that stark uh, um, uh, a choice. Sure. And, and as it goes back to my point before when I was waffling a bit, we've got to get the, the politics right, take the heat out of the situation, make it as bipartisan as we can in a humanitarian way, so that we can work on the longer term forms. Well, of I, I couldn't agree right? more with you, and and I think that this has um, been a big fault of the political process for a very long time. That if we can um, achieve a level of bipartisanship with Indigenous Australians, which we now have through the apology, and you know the fact that there are plenty of people from both sides of politics who are pouring their heart into that apology. Yeah. There is no philosophical um, difference. Other people will disagree with it. I think no, there's okay. no philosophical difference between the coalition and Labor in terms of their good intentions towards Indigenous people. Yeah. That does not exist in relation to refugees. And I'm not going to allocate blame, but I, I think the strong point you're making is that we have to as Australians, be mature enough to take the politics out of this. Maybe get some genuinely eminent people, and we did uh, through that Houston review, mm -hmm. but to carry on a national, national conversation, not just to prepare a report, which they did, you know, with a short period of time, but to carry on a national conversation yeah, about absolutely. this. And in the short period of time, I, I quite uh, uh, like the approach of the Houston report because it, it was a genuine... Uh, attempt at compromise on a very difficult issue. So it took bits of both major yeah. parties' policies and, and, and tried to mould them right. together. And you had people like Michael Lestrange, who was the former head of the Cabinet Office in the Howard government, right. who was you know, part of the consensus yeah, of that. Yeah. And Petro Giorgio, who says a lot of good things, yeah. uh, as controversial as the time. Says a good look. And one of the main issues, uh, one of the main uh, proclamations of Petro Giorgio subsequently is that there's no solutions to this. There's mm. no, uh, certainly not easy ones mm. uh, um, uh, and, and uh, certainly not short-term ones. Well, perhaps um, the, the solution, and, and you're right, we shouldn't talk about the Pacific solution or the Malaysian solution. They're not actually solutions, they're arrangements. Um, but maybe the solution, if there is one, is to take the politics out of it so that people realise that uh, no, refugees aren't clogging up the roads, as one of the yeah, yeah. Uh, coalition MPs said. Look at all the people <laughs> travelling in from uh, the west of Sydney into the city. It, it's full of refugees. <laughs> you get these absurd statements about uh, martyrs and peaceful invasions. Yeah. Well, you can't get 
right. uh, community consensus when you've got that kind of mm. pro provocation. And I'll go back to what I said at the start about the progressive message. That's good for Australia. That's not just harping on about uh, what's good for uh, foreigners and, and boat people and whatever else. There's no. Uh, there's a great cost of living in fear. Mm. There's a great cost of living in fear. You don't get good policy uh, when you're always working on an emergency, uh, yeah. trying to sort things out uh, for the next few months. Yes. Uh, just uh, uh, stop things from sinking. But uh, but it's it's not good for Australians to live in fear, particularly about uh, an issue that is um, that can be. Uh, quite positive for the community, mm. you know, uh, that can make us feel better so and make, bring us together. Let's just spend a little time before we get onto a series of questions that have been asked on Twitter and Facebook on an enduring arrangement that I think you and I agree is no way guaranteed to stop people arriving by boat, but it, it kind of, in my mind, it, it provides for more stability and the community says we can handle that, mm. just like you know, in the late 70s. Yep. You said there should be an end to offshore processing. If I put back to you the counter-argument is that um, if there's only onshore processing, there will be no deterrence. There will, people will just arrive in increasing numbers because they know once they make Australia mm. that the legal system, including the High Court, is likely to overturn anything or any major policy of a federal government. Yeah, well, I mean, I doubt that offshore processing, that assumes offshore processing is a long-term deterrent. It may work for a short period of time, but I doubt that it's a long-term uh, deterrent for, for a few reasons. Firstly, ultimately, people want to come to Australia because it's democratic and rich, and we're not about to change that. That would be yeah. uh, really against our interests. And, and if you look at it in a global sense, I'm an international relations scholar, uh, um, uh, fundamentally, uh, is that, that there's this sort of race to the bottom that occurs. We can see it more in Europe and America because there's more states and, and, and uh, uh, that sort of compete to race to the bottom. But it's not like we have offshore processing and then, uh, if we, then we'll stand out as, a, as a, an exemplar of border protection mm. and other states will, will match it. Uh, there's been some sense of that with uh, Canada and other countries and Europe putting up Australia as role models of border protection. So, so what happens after that? Well, we, we, then we lose the deterrence value because yeah, other states have, have taken that. So that's why I say I wonder whether border pro uh, offshore processing is a long-term deterrence. Well, I'll, I'll tell you who reckon it is, and that's the coalition government because they say John Howard stopped the boats. Yeah, well, look, there's no, statistically, no boats in 0102. Uh, there's, no, there's, no, um, uh, there's no denying that. But once again, I'll go back to this is why it's difficult to sell. It's a complex question, uh, a complex issue. If you stop the boats, it doesn't mean you're stopping them forever. Mm. It doesn't mean that you're saving people's lives. And it doesn't mean that Australia is necessarily better off, particularly uh, if, you don't live, if you don't live in fear. Well, the head of the immigration department who I think was um, involved in developing the so-called Pacific Solution actually said publicly it had run its course That's right, right. because the resettlement rate of people who had um, gone to Nauru was very high. That is, they were either settled in Australia or New Zealand in you know very high percentages and therefore the, the boats had stopped but they weren't going to stay stopped because uh, this had become reality that what That's they right. really That's did is point. spent some time. Yep. 
and ended up in Australia or New Zealand anyway. And arguably he's no longer a secretary as a consequence of And arguably he's no longer a secretary as a consequence of making that statement. Yeah. But I I do remember it was um, one of the reasons that um, the incoming Labor government um, proceeded with the dismantling of the so-called Pacific Solution because it did have advice from experienced people who'd helped assemble it uh, that it had run its course. Anyway, in a sense that's history and I'm not you know, into apportioning blame for the past, we're really talking about the future. So if we uh, accepted your uh, suggestion of no um, offshore processing, um, how do we have an orderly program? You're talking about some sort of relationship with Indonesia to what improve or expand its capacity to retain, if you like, if not detain, yeah. uh, asylum seekers and then make it more orderly. That's right. Basically, and that's, oh, don't get me wrong, that is, that's not an easy task. That's uh, uh, for, for various reasons that we can go into. That's, that's a very challenging task, but it's a far more preferable one. I think it can be more cost effective too. Mm. And, and, and still, uh, and I'll add to that to be controversial for some conservatives, if people come by boats, we should process them. Uh, in Australia and probably in uh, metropolitan centres where it's the cheapest to do so. Mm -hmm. Um, Indonesia is not a signatory to the Refugee Convention. The previous coalition government said it would not allow the um, people to be um, sent to Malaysia because it was not a signatory to the Refugee Convention. So uh, if the conservative argument is that you must be a member uh, signatory of the Refugee Convention, then that rules out Indonesia. Well, not necessarily. Once again, this is where I'm a bit more complicated. Uh, I'm a politics guy. I'm not necessarily a great um, devotee of international law. Mm. So the fact that they're not signatories doesn't mean that they don't have good values, intentions sure, exactly. and capabilities with respect Particularly to Particularly when a country so. like Somalia is a signatory to the that's Refugee right, Convention. Right. So apparently it would be all right to have people in Somalia but not Indonesia. Well, I've hopefully got a PhD. According to the coalition view, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> I've hopefully got it. And this is the importance. Here's one thing we could probably do differently with Indonesia is have a genuine dialogue. We struggle because it, it feels colonial, I think, sometimes. Mm. It feels like we've got the values, we've got the capabilities, you don't. We've got things to teach you uh, that you don't have to teach us. Now, even if you believe that, it's not a good way to go into a discussion with another nation state, particularly one that is as powerful and will be even more powerful, like Indonesia. So I've got, uh, hopefully, an interesting PhD student coming, looking at Islamic notions of, of asylum. And, and, and Islamic countries... Uh, are very, very generous to uh, refugees and forced migrants around the world, mostly other Muslims, mm-hmm. but, but, I mean, in such proportions that you can't deny uh, their, their values in terms of looking after displaced people. So this, I'm interested in questions of what can we also learn from Indonesia or, or how can we talk to them to improve asylum in Indonesia in terms that, 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 um, uh, that, that suit Indonesians better and that we can learn from. And I think there are some, uh, from what I've read of, of sort of memoirs of, of uh, uh, boat people and people smugglers and seen on documentaries, some Indonesians just think there's nothing wrong with, with um, sacrificing everything to give your family a better life. Mm. And as a consequence, people, they have more time for people smuggling. Uh, now, I'm not saying that's necessarily always the case and that we should, we should take that on board, but there's some sense 
something makes sense there. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? That's a small little liberal view almost. Well, so, we had Professor Hal Hill, who knows a lot about Indonesia, um, on MO Forum, and he was explaining how porous the borders really are. I mean, Indonesia is an archipelago of 17,300 islands. It's not like Australia, which is, well, two. Yeah, a few islands. Yeah. I'm, I'm counting Tassie and Cocos and Keeling and yeah, yeah. You know, a few other islands, Norfolk Island and so on. But uh, his point is that people coming and going is not at all yeah, unusual. Yeah. And That's in fact, many Indonesians go, Indonesians go to and from Malaysia. Yeah, yeah. But I suppose the... there'd be a question ultimately. You wouldn't be talking about a small number of people. That is, if Indonesia and Indonesian government said, okay, we will establish a processing um, you know, a bigger processing facility because they do have that in the UNHCR there. Um, would that not attract more people uh, from Afghan Hazaras, from Afghanistan, people from Iran, and so on? And then it still doesn't cope. Yeah. Well, I mean, once again, firstly, uh, if we change the way our mindset on this, attracting people who are gen genuine need is not necessarily a bad thing. A eh? And B, that's why it probably has to be, any real solution has to be longer term and broader than that. We have to go back to the push factors too. Mm. Uh, and that's why it's, it's particularly tricky and multifaceted and transnational. We have to look at, uh, I mean, people do this in government. Uh, they, they look at where are people coming from? Sure. Can we go back? But it's always, can we go back there, sort of emergency context? What can we do in a hurry yeah. to stop people from coming? When really it's a longer term project of, of uh, peace building, uh, of development and those yeah, sorts of but things. But I mean, so. you know, to be frank, um, no one knows how to settle things down in Syria. And there's a lot of refugees yeah, from Syria right. going uh, into Europe. Um, it would be great if there were peace and democracy in Syria, but there's mm -hmm. not going to be. And a lot of the events that cause the big flows are crises. Right? Yeah, yeah. Huge crises. And sure, we'd like to fix them, but you know, that's not the way the, the world's going to work. So I agree with you, nevertheless, that there's going to be a, always big push factors. You know, there's yeah, not going yeah. to be world peace um, and there will be crises and that's what causes, you know, a lot of people to go on the move. Yeah, and that's my point about the, the progressive should be the political realists in terms of their analysis of the situation. Mm -hmm. they, should, they should be saying, we're not going to stop the boats, uh, we're going to have some boats and it's going to be tragic at times, but we're not going to be uh, implicated uh, in the harm done upon these people, and we're going to um, uh, cooperate with them and as many other countries as possible uh, to to, uh, to to give them genuine protection uh, uh, in the national interest of Australia. Um, let me be cheeky and say to you that um, while people do think very fondly of the Fraser government, it was offshore processing, uh, and people were in detention um, in the, in including you, yeah, yeah, in 1979. So. But once again, we've got my, my parents, um, they, they, they don't have any qualms about that period because yeah. uh, they knew that resettlement was coming. They were, uh, they were good refugees in the sense they were happy to go anywhere. They, their preference was uh, America and Australia. Although mm. My dad always talks about applying to be a Turkish waiter, oh, yeah. but that one fell through and then we ended up coming to Australia. Uh, so uh, so I, I, don't, I don't think, you know, some of these people are happy to wait for an indefinite period on Nauru or or, uh, or Manus Island because it's a slightly better life than, than, than what they're going to have. Or they'll yeah. they'll take that risk at, yeah. at least. So yeah. so I don't think that's necessarily uh, uh, the worst thing. I, I wouldn't want to see uh, whole islands become processing centres for Australia. But 
but uh, but if the you know but if the conditions are right, uh, uh, then then I think that can be that sort of model can be workable, and it's the sort of you know the the comprehensive plan of action and and how we uh, the as an international community. Uh, uh, manage the Indo-Chinese refugee crisis really still should resonate a bit in how to do, do sure. things. Well, look, I think uh, what we should do uh, in recognition of the high levels of interest uh, shown in this MO forum uh, by people on Twitter and Facebook is for me to ask you a few questions. And I, it'll be clear that we have covered some of this territory and so we don't need to... Um, ponder each one of them at great length, but um, the first one's pretty good. Uh, what is a refugee? Uh, what is a refugee? Well, once again, there's a, there's a, the main one, the main definition comes from a 1951 uh, UN convention, which is someone who has a well-founded fear of persecution, basically yeah. a political uh, refugee, and there's various heads and reasons for that. But I always want to stress uh, the definition is uh, broad. That's, they don't have a monopoly on the definition. Often we refer to as progressives, uh, basically humanitarian refugees, people who who have suffered uh, uh, because of their politics or their uh, religious disposition or or uh, their ethnicity or something like that, and are deserving of protection. And there are other conventions um, in Africa and uh, in Latin America uh, that define refugees largely uh, in a similar way to the UN definition, but add. Uh, political instability, uh, civil war, right. uh, and and those sort of things as 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 uh, as Criteria, encompassing uh, like, refugees. Yeah. So that's that's the, the the most interesting one with the UN definition. It's political persecution, generalized violence, and war is not enough. If you're escaping mm -hmm. that, that's not enough to make you a refugee. Right. Okay. Uh, do you agree that letting people arrive by boat incentivizes the journey for more people? Uh, yes, but not significantly above being a democratic and rich country. Thank you. I'd like to know, uh, this is a further tweeter, how sustainable refugee is intake is calculated? So how yeah, is, I, I, think, I guess that's the 13,750 or yep. the 20,000, and what variables can affect the way it is done? Yep. Well, it used to, one way to do it that makes some sense is that you peg it to uh, immigration intake. Mm -hmm. So you might have 10, 5, 1% uh, of, yeah. of the uh, number of uh, immigrants, right? Of, uh, but the problem with that is that when it goes down, then the uh, refugee uh, intake must also go down. Yeah. And, and in the past, that's, that's occurred, and the immigration department successfully lobbied to keep it relatively high. I see, yeah. but, but, the, but it makes political sense to do that because you're saying you don't get those uh, the, that misinformation that, that refugees, you know, there's all those stats out that everyone's coming yeah, as a refugee. So that's one way to do it. But, but basically, um, it's very difficult to calculate what's Australia's fair share mm. because Australia's in a, in, a, in a quite peculiar circumstance where it's traditionally it's been a, a peculiar circumstance where it's an island. It's a rich democratic island, whereas Europe mm. and America are, 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 are far more connected to other parts of the developing yeah. and, and difficult world. Yeah. So... Um, well, that figure would be roughly 10% because the immigration intake is around 180,000. Yeah. And if we go halfway, not halfway, but between 13,750 and 20,000, we're talking, if it were 18,000, it would be 10%. Yeah, yeah. So, well, the Greens go for 30,000, and I'm not necessarily green on a lot of issues, but I, I think there's sense in that. There's countries that are far, uh, there's OEC, OEC average, OECD averages and Australia's 
uh, hardly leading in terms of the number of refugees it takes. It's middling. So, so if you really wanted to say that we we, we want to take in more people, then we could yeah. we could certainly handle. And our economy is doing better than a lot of uh, the uh, European uh, and North American countries. So there's a case for more than twenty thousand. Okay, this was um, why won't swapping asylum seekers who come to Australia by boat with processed refugees from refugee camps work? Why won't that work? Uh, well, so once this again, is the kind of Malaysian, Malaysian swap. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, I just I think it, one of them wouldn't work of itself, and I know the the Labor government was interested in setting up other other swap arrangements. Yeah. Uh, but I, I just don't think it'll work in and of itself. I think there'll just be uh, more people who want to come uh, uh, um, than, than you'll have spaces for, or you won't be able to get enough of an arrangement. Yeah. I mean, that was 800 or something, 800 or 4,000, 4, right? yeah. That's, that's piddling, that's piddling. So if you had, if you had a, I don't think you'd get uh, enough of those arrangements uh, 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 for it to make a significant You're, difference. They could be swamped, the kind of limit and then yeah. you've got to have another arrangement and another month. And my, my and that was put to the Labor Party and they said it had to be implemented straight away mm. and it, it would have had some impact but even yeah. that uh, even I think the Labor Party would agree that it, it hasn't uh, that's just not enough now. So this fifth question and the last one on Twitter goes back to the first question why aren't business migrants labelled economic refugees? Oh, Because they're here looking to make money and not running away from uh, persecution. Uh, but there are notions of an economic refugee, aren't there? Uh, there, there are. If you're, but it's more uh, a lot of people who are say crossing the southern border of the U.S., the northern border of mm. Mexico. So, so they're so they're incredibly poor, yeah. and they're moving to, to to make a living to California. So, so yeah. So, like that, but yeah. but yeah. So, but if their life's almost in danger because they're so poor, then that would be an economic refugee. Uh, On to the Facebook questions. What does Dr. Huynh feel? Australia's best action could be to assist asylum seekers and meet our international obligations? Uh, I think it would be to wind back mandatory detention. Mm -hmm. On to the next. Why doesn't the United Nations pull the present uh, Liberal government into line over the asylum seeker issue? There are international courts which were established for international matters. Why can't they assist with human justice under Australia's obligations? Uh, because the United Nations does not have an army, yeah. uh, because its laws uh, are, are not, They're not significantly enforceable. enforceable. In that way, are they? And yeah. and here's the other here's the other rub. The United Nations still wants to keep the UNHCR, the UN Refugee mm. Agency. They still want Australia to maintain some sort of humanitarian yeah. program. So that they want to praise that and make sure they don't do, you know, yeah, they're, they're yeah. always um, balancing that act. They don't yeah. want. To, to, to piss off the Australian government yeah. so much that they lose already what they and have. And there's not actually, uh, you're not breaking a law, a law as such, as I understand, if you violate the refugee convention. I mean, people aren't necessarily happy about no, no. breaching it, but it's not like an international court that... Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I'll put it this way just quickly. The, the, it, it's not a strong law, but I've heard UN people say that they regard the 51 Convention as the most successful international convention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so international lawyers uh, or, or, and wannabes, uh, if that's the strongest <laughs> that you've got, then, uh, then uh, have a good look at yourself. Yeah, yeah. As I said, I'm not necessarily a law guy. Yeah. Uh, another question, quite long. Uh, how is the current government getting away with the secrecy over arrivals and treatment of asylum seekers? Isn't this behaviour more conducive of communism or military law? And if so... 
Where is the Governor-General de delivering the dismissal of the Prime Minister and forcing another election? Do we really have to wait till they've decimated our nation and its people? Yes, well, it is. A lot of values is, in that. Uh, yeah, uh, this is the, one of the new dynamics of refugee politics because it ties into uh, 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 intelligence issues and how we deal with the public in mm. the 21st century. Uh, and it's a tricky one. I think, oh, look, I think... It's just one of those issues, uh, probably the main message is it's, uh, this is the way we're dealing with refugees in a securitized sense, as we talked before. It's bad yeah. for Australia. Yeah. It's bad for Australian democracy. Now, the other side of it is, I'll, empathize, I'll, I'll agree with it to this extent, if, if, if it can be a means, a genuine means, a goodwill means, uh, to take the heat out of the issue and to work against um, providing information to people smugglers, I don't really see how it helps because usually mobile phones beat... Mm anything that, that the government yeah. can do in terms of secrecy to those people who count, i.e. people smugglers and whoever they're dealing with here and talking to here, um, then, then I, I, I can conceive of, of, of providing a little less information to the public as being useful. But I don't think that's the intention. Mm. And, but, but, you know, to tell you the truth, uh, to be a bit glum about this, uh, it, some of this may work. It may, I think. Some, I don't know. I haven't. Uh, there hasn't been many uh, polls on this that I know of uh, 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 recently. But Australians may be a bit sick of this issue. I think they want to just wanted it out of their hair. Yeah. And if and they may view it as harping journalists and the the latte set mm -hmm. complaining. And, and I think the the coalition government will stick to their guns. To use an awful uh, uh, metaphor. And they'll they'll think that. That the, the uh, it'll become the new norm. Yeah, uh, right. Couple more. Uh, how does Dr. Huynh think and feel about the way we treat refu refugees with disabilities? Yes, I, I've only just started to look into this uh, a little more in the last few years. I'm, I'm grateful for a couple of my um, disabled students pointing me towards that. And there's some uh, there's some awful cases, but they're, they're, uh, of of people who are already here. Uh, being uh, uh, discriminated against or even deported because they or their dependents have disabilities. Mm -hmm. So I would think uh, they need to... I'd, I'd be pretty simple on this. These situations need to be aired uh, as, uh, uh, as much as possible and, and I think the Australians are decent enough to, to do something about them. The last question is related and it's this. I'd like to know more about the long-term health costs Australia faces caring for asylum seekers subjected to years of imprisonment in a country where they sought refuge and the mental health impacts of that treatment. Yeah, this goes back to what I said before. It's not easy to look after refugees often, and, uh, and I can see uh, my parents are affected by a trauma in lots of different ways, and in some ways they've even passed it on to me uh, um, after all, all these years. Like my dad's a chronic insomniac. They have mm -hmm. um, a lot of... This is the generalisation, but some have a, a, a genuine distrust of the state for good reasons, yeah. right? And doesn't any state, not just the state that persecuted them. And obviously, as the, as the, the tweeter points out, there's mental health issues and whatever else. But, but I'd, I'd go back and, and make these points. Firstly, arguably, there's some connection about how they, their asylum claims are treated and what political context they come in and how they resettle in that country. Uh, so, so, so the Vietnamese arguably have less mental health issues yeah. uh, because they were welcomed more into Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, secondly, I'd say that uh, uh, if you can stick with refugees, as I understand it, the research shows, 
that they give you a pretty good return. Mm. And not just in the economic sense, because as you said, entrepreneurial, they're yeah. looking uh, to make their life better. So that's good in the economic sense. But in the patriotic sense, there's, yeah. a, there's a huge, uh, um, um, you know, um, the vast majority of refugees become citizens. It's 90-something percent. Yes. So, so once again, so if you look in the longer term, uh, those costs are significant. I've never uh, doubted that. But, but, but there's a good side of it too. You know, but there's, there's, um, uh, you know, there's all those cliches about Einstein being a refugee and, uh, and, and many others. And I've written some work about how their attuneness to uh, persecution and uh, their status as being the nerve ends of humanity, uh, Frank Lowy and whatever else, can, yeah. and whoever else, can be uh, very much connected to their extraordinary status, their extraordinary minds, mm, their extraordinary mm. endeavours, uh, and uh, their extraordinary commitment to their new societies. So, so, you know, that's both a heartfelt plea and an intellectual plea uh, to say that I know it's difficult to take in refugees and that there's concerns about them that are, that are genuine and, and that make sense, but there's, it also makes sense to invest in them uh, for the better of Australia. Well, a question for me to close. If you could change one thing in the world, what would it be? Uh, on this issue, this issue, I'd go back to mandatory detention. Not only wind it back as much go as... Go back to it? Uh, no, no, no sorry. I'd get rid of it. I'd yeah, go back yeah. to my, my, uh, my suggestion that, that we get rid of it. At, at, at least tone it down in the sense that we're moving in that direction to not make it uh, legal to have uh, indefinite uh, and inhumane mandatory detention. That seems, if you put that to almost any Australian, they'd say, um, we shouldn't have that, and yet we do. And really, we should be looking back, looking at, at getting rid of it altogether. We're exceptionally bad uh, as a country because of mandatory detention. Well, it seems to me that if we could have that national conversation, which I hope you and I have been a part of here today, as it did occur in relation to our Indigenous brothers and sisters, just hasn't fixed all problems, but has changed attitudes. And maybe that national conversation needs to start in earnest pull some of the politics out of it, the vote getting, you know, the harvesting of votes mm. and really see if we can have a more mature uh, debate about these matters where we're talking about the interests of the asylum seekers, the interests of the Australian people and not the interests of the politicians. I think that would be good progress too. But it's been a pleasure having you on MO Forum. Dr Kim Quinn, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, thank you.